Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. In today's episode, Dr. Paolo Mimbella will be interviewing a giant in our field, Dr. Walter Frontera. Dr. Frontera is currently a professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the University of Puerto Rico. He is also a professor in physiology in that same university. Dr. Frontera completed his medical studies and residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation in 1983 at the University of Puerto Rico and a doctoral degree in applied anatomy and physiology at Boston University in 1986. In 1995, he spent a sabbatical year at the Karolinska Hospital in Stockholm, Sweden in the Department of Clinical Neurophysiology studying the effects of aging and exercise on the biochemical and contractile properties of human skeletal muscle. In 1996, he was recruited to be the inaugural professor and head of the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School and Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. From 2006 till 2011, he served as Dean of the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Puerto Rico. Later on, he became a professor and inaugural chair of the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. His main research interest is geriatric rehabilitation, and in particular, the study of the mechanics underlying muscle atrophy and weakness in the elderly. He has more than 230 scientific publications, including 96 peer-reviewed articles and 16 edited books. Currently, he serves as the editor-in-chief of the American Journal of PNR. So without further ado, I leave you with Dr. Mambella as he interviewed this giant in our field, So without further ado, I'm going to turn the floor over to Dr. Walter Frontera, who just gave us our Grand Rounds lecture on age-related sarcopenia and what, what we can do to combat that loss of muscle mass. Hello, Dr. Frontera. Good morning. Happy to be here. So, Dr. Frontera, you started your presentation off um, with an image, um, and the image was of a pine tree, and you had the words written underneath that this is the, the Japanese symbol of aging. Right. So um, I think aging has become, is getting the attention of a lot of people around the world. And in some cultures, um, age, old age and aging has always been subject of um, discussion. And the Japanese culture is, is one of them. And they have a significant amount of respect for uh, people that uh, live longer than the usual, but also for, um, you know, things in nature that are known because of their, uh, are known for their longevity. And the pine tree is one of them. Okay. Um, it is interesting that a few months ago, In the journal Science, a group of uh, researchers published their discovery of a shark 
in in the uh, coast of uh, Greenland that um, is now known to be the oldest uh, um, animal in the world and that probably live, you know, 250 years or 300 years, uh, which is, of course, much longer than than human life expectancy. So Mm. the point is that aging has become one of these topics that people talk about from different uh, aspects, including uh, cultural and, and also biological. Okay. Now, you mentioned that <clears throat> that that's a cultural thing, um, a cultural norm for the Japanese culture, maybe, that they, they pay a little bit more attention to aging. But in general, it looks like around the world, we're all, we're all paying attention a little bit more to aging. And yeah. is that because we're living longer now than we ever have in, in human history? Yes, I, I think that the recent report published by the World Health Organization shows very clearly that, that uh, uh, there is a significant increase in the number of people in this age group, um, over 60 or 65, and also a significant increase in life expectancy. Um, this is happening all over the world. Uh, there's only uh, one important exception, and that is uh, the African continent, where uh, life expectancy is increasing, but not as much as in other continents of the world. So, I, I think I would say it is it is um, it would be very difficult for governments and health systems to ignore the aging of the population. Okay, this is a very dramatic change, demographic change that started in the 20th century and has continued in the 21st century. And we are going to have to uh, understand it and adjust or adapt um, so so we can uh, help individuals that are um, aging and, and, um, and, and also, you know, I guess promote um, respect for uh, aging and older people. Okay. So, <clears throat> since that is basically established that the human population is living longer now, and it's generally an accepted idea that the older that you are, your physical capabilities will start to somewhat decline, even some of your mental abilities will start to decline the longer and longer that you live. But is that necessarily something that we can do something about? Can we slow down the aging process? Can mm-hmm. we, or <clears throat> maybe not the number, because you can't do anything about the number, but your abilities, your abilities mentally, your abilities physically. You talked about one very interesting case during your presentation, and that was the case of the cent- uh, centenarian cyclist. Um, he was a 105-year-old uh, Frenchman named Robert Marchand who set... Uh, who set a record at 105 years old, an actual cycling record at 105 years old by cycling over 22 kilometers, about 14 miles, in one hour. Um, why did you bring that case up? Well, I, th- I think that the, the fact that we lose functional and physiological abilities, uh, abilities as we grow older is something that is, is well known. As you, as you mentioned, there's a lot of research um, longitudinal research that has shown that we lose um, the uh, ability of many tissues and systems to perform 
the way they do in younger people. So, but the interesting point is that um, we now know that this is not necessarily a biologic process that is inevitable. We, we know now that there are other things that complicate aging, that are age-associated, that we can do something about. So we're not suggesting that you can alter uh, the biologic process of aging. What we're saying is that that process is accompanied by a lot of other elements that we have some ability to alter. Things like uh, the quality of the uh, dietary intake, for example. Things like the level of physical activity. Those two things, we can do something about them. And we know that if the quality of those two, or the amount of those two, is not optimal, then um, older people um, show signs of, of decline faster than people who maintain a certain level of habitual physical activity and have a, a normal diet. This individual that, that we discussed in the, uh, in the presentation is just one example of a centenarian that was able to train for two years, increase his VO2 max and, and uh, power output um, so he could break the record. And, and um, the reason why we presented that case is because, of course, there, there, there was the investigators did a very good job in documenting the physiological changes over the, the two-year training uh, period. Um, but there's a lot of other research showing that people in their 80s and 90s and, and some centenarian uh, research, research on centenarians, um, these people have the ability to adapt to interventions such as exercise and increased uh, physical activity. And we now know that these interventions are safe and effective in this age group. And when you say interventions, you mean dietary interventions and exercise prescription interventions? Is that particularly what you're referring to? Yes. So the most important intervention from, from my point of view and based on what we discussed this morning is, is, an, is an exercise intervention. Okay. Of course, um, we, we tell everybody in the population that they should do different types of exercise for different purposes. And, and so flexibility exercises and balance exercises are important. Endurance training or cardiovascular training is important. This morning, however, we focused on strength training because it is the most, the most uh, effective way of addressing um, sarcopenia in, okay. in older people. So, yes, I am referring to the use of exercise as an intervention that is both safe and effective. And I'm also referring to the combination of exercise and a high-protein diet okay. that we know um, are synergistic and can help us address some of these concerns that we have about older people that lose muscle strength and muscle mass as they grow older. Okay. You, you mentioned the term sarcopenia, and I think <clears throat> the general public is a little bit more um, familiar with two terms related to bone health, and that's osteoporosis and osteopenia, which usually is kind of the predecessor. It's the initial loss of bone before you get to an osteoporotic state. Um, can you explain what you mean when you say, when you use the term sarcopenia? 
Yeah, sarcopenia is is equivalent to to the concepts that you mentioned uh, that apply to bone health. Uh, sarco- the term sarcopenia was coined by Irvin Rosenberg in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and it really means the loss of muscle mass. That was the original uh, description. Okay. Um, nowadays, we use it to um, explain what is happening to muscle as we grow older, and, and we include not only muscle mass, but also muscle strength and performance. So the way we do this in the clinic is that we measure walking speed and determine whether the person is, is walking at a normal speed or not. Then we decide whether we need to measure strength, and we usually do handheld uh, dynamometry to measure strength of the uh, hand grip. And then we decide to, if we need to do measurements of muscle mass using some of the more sophisticated equipment such as DEXA. So based on those um, evaluations and measurements, we can then make the uh, diagnosis of sarcopenia. So the point is that nowadays sarcopenia, the, the term sarcopenia refers not only to the loss of muscle mass, but also to a functional component. Okay. Do you think that they're directly related one to the other? So sarcopenia, I, from what I'm understanding, is something that to a certain extent is kind of inevitable. The older you get, you are going to lose some muscle mass. And I mean, some numbers have been thrown out there. You know, you lose anywhere from, I don't know, let's say 2 to 5% muscle mass every decade once you hit the age of 30. Some of that is probably going to happen regardless of how active or how well-nutriented you are. But the loss of function, and I think that's probably what's most important um, to anybody, um, is that what you're saying we can combat, or can we combat both things? Like one at the cellular level, can we combat sarcopenia itself? Yeah. Well, let me clarify. Uh, Not everybody will get sarcopenia most of us will lose muscle mass as we grow older and and muscle strength, but that doesn't qualify as um, sarcopenia. So sarcopenia, diseased state? Yes, it is, and you have to to lose a certain amount of muscle mass and function before you can kind of qualify for that diagnosis. Again, it's equivalent to osteopenia and osteoporosis. there, There are certain standards that you can use to know exactly um, you know how much you have lost, and and whether that qualifies you as a for a diagnosis. Okay. Um, but but you're right about the fact that that independent of the label, we all lose strength and mass. And and you're also right about the fact that our concern is not really just the fact that we can that we're losing muscle mass, but that that loss has functional implications. And in rehab, what, what we should try to do then is to compensate for that, is to intervene to address the functional loss. And we now know that exercise is effective in, in treating this condition and that we can regain mass and strength and muscle performance okay. with exercise training. Now, I have, a, I have a question. As far as loss, some of that normal loss of muscle mass, or even somebody that gets to that diseased state that they qualify for the diagnosis of sarcopenia, are there certain muscle groups that are more affected than others? Let's say maybe you're, 
your paraspinal muscles, which help you with your posture, or your quadricep muscles, which help you with getting up out of a chair? Yeah. Well, we, we know that, that many muscle groups are um, affected. Okay. And, and, of course, most of the research has focused on muscles of the lower limbs, uh, but there is good research also on the paraspinal muscles. So, and I, I think that this is a systemic process that is not limited to one type of muscle or one limb. This is a systemic process, and uh, we know more about some muscles because they're, from a functional point of view, more important. The extensors of the knee uh, have been studied extensively because they contribute to our daily functional ability in a very significant way. And to some degree, again, these are muscles that are easy to study. Okay. So we may know more about those that, than, than other muscles. But this is a systemic process, and it will affect many muscle groups. Okay. Are there tools that clinicians can use right in the clinic to assess somebody as far as, you know, where along the spectrum they may lie? Do they, yeah. you know... Do they qualify for that diagnosis? And for patients to understand as well, like, these are kind of the tests that we use to be able to look at whether or not they're they're losing an excessive amount of muscle or they're losing an excessive amount of functional capacity. Right. So as I mentioned before, there, there is a consensus um, that, that was published a few years ago by the European Working Group on Sarcopenia that is very similar to the Asian group uh, consensus that if we measure walking speed in the clinic and uh, hand grip strength, that those two measurements may be an indicate may be good indicators that someone uh, has sarcopenia or may be at risk of having uh, so developing sarcopenia. Of course, those two measurements should then lead to the to a uh, measurement of muscle mass. If you combine those three, then you can make a diagnosis. Now, there is also some research suggesting that a very simple clinical questionnaire that I discussed this morning can also be used to predict the possibility that someone will develop uh, sarcopenia. And these are very simple questions that all of us actually use in our clinic that have to do with uh, falls, for example, ability to rise from a chair, ability to carry um, you know, a certain amount of weight and so on. So we have the questionnaire that, that may be suggestive of, and then we have these other tests that, that we know we can use to make the diagnosis. Okay. So let's say we get to the point where a clinician has made the diagnosis. Um, I don't know if it's taught that extensively in medical school you know, how you should prescribe exercise. So at that point, you know, I think most physicians tell their patients, you know, either whether they're in primary care or even if they're in a specialty such as physical med and rehab, they turn around and they say, okay, I need you to be more active. Um, so is, is, is that enough or what should we say? Are there certain parameters that we should be telling patients to work more on? You mentioned earlier cardiovascular training versus strength training versus power training. Is there something that we should focus yeah. when we prescribe exercise? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And unfortunately, um, many of our patients get very generic advice. And, and that's not enough. They, when they go back home, they really don't know exactly what to do. And so I, what I would say is that um, we should be prescribing exercise using the same parameters that we use to prescribe medications. Okay. 
So we need to identify the type of exercise and we need to um, discuss with the patient the intensity, the frequency, and the duration okay. of the training. This is equivalent to when you prescribe an antibiotic. You describe or identify the type of antibiotic, what is the dosage, how many times per day, and for how many days. Okay. Uh, these are the same four elements that we need for an exercise prescription. And we should be very specific about these. Um, and, and we should be spending time with our patients explaining what is it exactly that they have to do. Okay. Um, the challenge, of course, is to find that time, um, quality time with the patient, but I think that's, that's a mechanical issue. Okay. Uh, clearly, we have to be specific with our patients. If not, they're going to come back and tell you that they're doing something that they were not supposed to do. Okay. Now, when we prescribe the exercise... <clears throat> and the identify the type of exercise, then we can choose. Do we want them to do endurance training? Do we want them to do strength training or power training? And then for each of those, we have to be, again, be specific and say, okay, this is the frequency, this is the duration, and this is the intensity. Okay, and you try to couple those as well with dietary changes, mod modifications to diet? Yes, as we mentioned before, we know that diet... Um, is an important element to this um, complex um, set of circumstances. And, and I think we have to, the evidence that we have is that if you combine exercise, in this case strength training, with um, good dietary support, increased protein intake, specifically an increasing protein intake, we know that those two work well together. Okay. And we have to you know, provide that kind of counseling to our patients okay. or get our dietitian to work with us okay. and, and help the patient understand exactly how much and, and what food source they should be uh, using in order to obtain that additional amount of protein. Mm -hmm. But we know that additional protein is needed in order to, um, to increase the possibility of, uh, of having a positive impact from uh, exercise training. And is that additional protein on top of, you know, what the patient is consuming the day they walk in the door, or do you have somewhat, you know, percentages of diet, percentage of caloric intake that should be coming from protein that we can recommend? Or? Yeah, that's a good point. Of, of course, you, you have to understand the baseline situation here. What What is the diet? The, the, typical normal diet like and based on that you can make recommendations regarding additional uh, components for the diet now we know that in the case of protein intake uh, people who exercise people who are physically active have a higher requirement for protein okay. than the usual and in fact the number that has been cited many times is is between 1.2 and 1.5 um, grams per kilogram of body weight per day. Okay. Is that, that all body weight? I'm that's, sorry to interrupt that's, all, that's all body weight, okay. and that's all protein. Okay. And then, of course, the question is, how close to that amount is the normal diet of my patient? Okay. And in, in uh, many studies have shown that a lot of people really don't have in their normal, regular diet that amount of protein which is why supplementation has been suggested as a way of addressing this. And for some of the listeners that may already be, you know, out there buying supplements or 
trying different, and we're not trying to push any particular supplement, but you mentioned um, certain amino acids or certain sources of the protein that, that have been shown to be more effective for these goals, for the goals of increasing strength, for the goals of increasing power. Um, you mentioned leucine. Um, right. So, so this, is a, this is a very interesting area of active research, and, and there is some conflictive evidence in the literature, but I think that uh, I think there is consensus that um, the important thing is to increase the total amount of protein, and the, the number that is cited by a lot of people is 25 to 30 grams of protein that you can ingest um, after the exercise training session. And, and it is important to, to know um, that loosing has to be a significant component to that additional total protein intake. Um, loosing is an amino acid that has been shown to enhance the response of muscle to exercise. And it's probably more than two grams of loosing that you have to add to your, that has to be part of the, of the supplement. Now, you know, we, I, I don't want to get into um, commercially available products, okay. specific products, but I think what the uh, consumer should do is, is simply make sure that they understand, they read the labels of the products and they understand how much additional protein they need. Um, and then and then they can make their own choices. Okay. Outside of supplements, are there dietary sources that are high in that particular amino acid? For instance, um, milk or dairy product? Dairy products is, is one potential source. Okay. Yeah. But I, I think that, you know, before um, you go out and decide that you want to buy all kinds of products, I think... The first step is to actually look at your regular dietary habits. Okay. You know, what, what does your diet look like at this point in time? And where is the gap, if any? Okay. And you can do that, of course, with your um, dietitian. Or, so, so I think we need, we need for, the, uh, for, for people in this age group to become more informed and more educated in terms of, your, of their um, dietary habits. Okay. And options. Switching gears a little bit, during your presentation, you mentioned anti-inflammatory effects of exercise. Um, the reason that I bring this up is right now, this seems to be a huge trend in the fitness world, and that is, and I'm talking about fitness from martial arts practitioners to crossfitters to just, you know, resistance trainers. They're all talking about anti-inflammatory diets or anti-inflammatory type exercise, um, and one of your one of your slides during your presentation mentioned uh, a particular study that showed that exercise in general has anti-inflammatory effects. What did you mean by that? Yeah. Well, I, I first of all, there is a very important observation that has been made in, in several studies, and that is that um, one of the um, problems that we have with sarcopenia is that people with sarcopenia and also aging people in general may have a subclinical level of inflammation okay. and that this inflammation may be contributing to a catabolic state that results in the loss of muscle mass and function and so on. So, so this appears to be one of the elements of 
what we call the aging process. And so it is important to understand to what degree inflammation contributes to, to sarcopenia. So that's, that's point number one. And number two, back to your question, um, what we know is that if you measure inflammatory markers or markers of inflammation, after exercise training, those markers are lower. Okay. Levels of those markers are lower after exercise training, suggesting that exercise is attempting to reverse the changes that are associated with the aging process. Okay. They go in a different dire- in, the, in the opposite direction. Um, now, th- again, th- this is not one single bout of exercise that may induce some inflammation. This is training. So uh, in, in that particular study, after 16 weeks of training, they measured markers of inflammation, and they found that they were much lower after training. Okay. So that may be an indication, again, that exercise training is reversing some of the age-associated uh, physiological changes. So that's that's what you mean by when you're saying these are kind of controlled stressors. When yeah. when you give somebody a bout of exercise, there's actually an increase in inflammation, but only only transiently. And yeah. then over time, your body actually yeah. habituates and and decreases its overall catabolic state. Its overall. I think that's a fair way of putting it. Um, you know, a certain amount of exercise and particularly eccentric exercise, may induce an acute inflammatory response. But the body gets used to it. Okay. You, you, you get adapted. And, and so over time, the, the, the inflammatory response is, is much lower, and then baseline levels of inflammatory markers are lower okay. after training. So what I'm getting from everything that we're discussing is there is no perfect recipe as far as diet, there is no perfect recipe as far as exercise, even for two, you know, 75-year-old males. I can't, I can't just take one person or both people and say, this should be your diet, this should be your exercise, and okay, goodbye, see you in 12 weeks, and let's see if you're doing better. It should be a little bit more personalized is what I'm getting from you. Yeah, I, I think we have to individualize our recommendations the same way we individualize any other prescription. Any other intervention, we have to take into account their specific uh, weaknesses or and and interests and abilities to to f- um, follow an exercise training uh, recommendation. So, um, but but what we know is that exercise is safe and effective in this age group. Okay. That older people can exercise and can show significant adaptations to exercise training. Uh, that uh, from a relative point of view, they can improve as much as the younger group. Okay. And that's a little bit of a shift in philosophy as to what we used to think 30 years ago, perhaps, where... Yeah, it is definitely a significant shift. I think 30 years ago, 25 years ago, we were very concerned about exercise, exercise training in older people, I, I think we have overcome that. Okay. And we now understand that if you do not exercise, then you're enhancing aging. Okay. And that the normal state of affairs should be exercise, okay. not, not inactivity, not rest. Not bed rest. <laughs> That's for sure. Okay. Um, before we close, um, are there any particular recommendations that you have for 
not just clinicians, but for patients in general, maybe somebody who's listening, who's kind of getting a little bit a little bit into retirement age and starting to think, okay, well, <laughs> I, I talk about, for instance, my father who, who says, no, that stuff's for, for the young men, that stuff's not for me. What would you say to somebody like that? Well, I would say to them that the most important thing you, you can do as you grow older and retire is to preserve your functional capacity <clears throat> so you can do things, the things you like to do, is to preserve your independence so you don't have to have, have to get help from everybody or other people to do the things that you want to do in your daily life. And the best way to preserve that functional capacity and independence is to maintain a physically active lifestyle. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Fontera. It's been a pleasure having you here and having you speak with us. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, as we close another session of our podcast, I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.